please remain standing as we hear the Word of God on this first week of Advent, Luke chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Into the darkness and brokenness of this sinful world, God sent his son, Jesus, to bring us peace. And so this morning, we light the first candle of Advent as a reminder to ourselves that our peace is a person and his name is Jesus. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me? Father, we thank you that while this world lay in the darkness and brokenness of sin, without hope and without peace in this world, you sent your son, Jesus. And so, Lord, as our hearts are being prepared for the Christmas season to come, Lord, would you give us an insight into what peace Jesus brings and help us, I pray. Every man, woman, child in this room, those joining us online, that we would know the peace only Jesus can give, that we would leave this room and live to the glory of God in the peace of Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, church. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, the text that we just read, will be our text for this morning, and as you've already heard, this morning begins our celebration of Advent. And I know some of you may not be familiar with the Advent season, so let me give you a little bit of insight into Advent. Advent means coming or arrival. And so the Advent season is a period of time leading up to Christmas where we prepare our hearts to celebrate the coming or the arrival of Jesus into our world. And traditionally, Advent focuses on four specific themes, peace, joy, hope, and love. Each week, we meditate over one of those themes from the Word of God, preparing us for the peace, 
the hope, the joy, and the love that Jesus has brought into all of our lives who know him. And I've got to tell you, as much as I had hoped to be able to stay in our verse-by-verse study of the book of Daniel a few weeks ago, it dawned on me that it would be really hard to incorporate the Advent themes into Daniel's visions of the Antichrist. So... During Advent, we're going to take a brief detour out of our study of Daniel. We'll pick up in the new year, but we'll turn our attention over these weeks to the account of Christ's birth in Luke chapter 2. And this morning's focus is that first Advent theme of peace. Jesus came, and I want you to hear me, and I want you to hear the Lord. Jesus came to bring you peace. That you would live with a peace that only God can give. A peace this world may offer but cannot fulfill. Jesus came to bring you peace. That's one of the clearest things that we see from the text I just read. Verses 13 and 14 culminate with this declaration. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. That word host in verse 13 literally means army. So at the birth of Jesus, get this, God sent the army of heaven to this earth and he didn't send his army to do battle with us broken, rebellious sinners. He didn't even send his army to give safe care to his son in a world gripped by the evil and darkness of the enemy, he sent his army to declare to you and me and every generation since that Jesus was born, that baby in a manger came to this earth to bring glory to God and peace to people. And as I was studying for this morning, I felt the Lord stirring me to spend a few moments just considering what peace is. What is peace? As we talk about this, I think it can be common for us to get familiar with a word and assume we know what it means. Well, in the English language, our word peace largely means the absence of conflict or war. And certainly that is a part of having peace. You can't be at peace when you're at war. But the biblical idea of peace is so much larger than just the absence of conflict or war. As a matter of fact, many of you know that the Bible is originally written in the Old Testament in the, the language of Hebrew because it's written to the Hebrews, to the Jews largely. And the biblical concept of peace is rooted in the Hebrew word that's most often translated peace, the word shalom. Many of you are familiar with that word, at least you know that it's a word. Well, shalom is the Hebrew word for peace, and it means complete or whole. It's referring to something that is fully or wholly or completely everything that it's intended to be. Let me give you a couple of examples from the Old Testament. Joshua chapter 8 verse 31 describes what's called an altar of uncut stones. You may not know it, but in the original language of the Bible, that word uncut comes from the word shalom. It's referring to stones that hadn't been chipped away by human hands or broken in any way. They weren't parts of a stone. They were complete or whole stones just the way that God had made them. Then a little bit later in the Old Testament, a king named Solomon 
was given a task by God to build a temple for God in the city of Jerusalem. And the temple that Solomon built God had been laid out basically by the Lord and was one of the most complex structures ever built in the ancient world. It required literally an army of craftsmen to put all of the parts and pieces together. Well, once that complex, intricate building was completed in 1 Corinthians chapter, or 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 51, it says this, thus all the work that King Solomon did on the house of the Lord was finished. Now you can't tell in English, but that word finished comes from the word shalom. So the concept of shalom isn't just the absence of conflict or war. The, the idea of shalom and biblical peace is a reference to something that's complex, something that has lots of parts and pieces. It's a recognition that our lives and our world are complex with lots of parts and pieces. And when any of those parts and pieces are out of order or out of place, our peace, our shalom breaks down. Let me give you a quick illustration. It's kind of like the game Jenga. Um, have you all played Jenga before? Three of you have played Jenga. You've got an inside track on the rest of us. Well, listen, Jenga is a game that has lots of parts and pieces, a lot of rectangular blocks that have to be stacked one on top of the other to make a sort of tower. You can see a, a Jenga tower there behind me. Every player playing Jenga then has to take one of those pieces from the tower, place it on the top without causing the, the tower to fall down. And you can see that behind me. It's still a tower. Those pieces are just getting higher. It's being built upon itself. And here's the object of the game. The object of the game is get that tower as high as you can without falling the tower or causing the, the tower to collapse. And here's the story. Our family, like some of yours, have had some epic Jenga games over the years. All our Jenga games end the exact same way. My son, Logan, tries to move a piece that's impossible to move, right? And the whole thing falls down into this, right? It just becomes a pile of blocks scattered all over the floor. That pile of blocks is the opposite of shalom. It's the opposite of what the Bible is referring to when it says the word peace. It's a mess. It's just a bunch of blocks scattered on the ground until somebody, which his name is usually dad, takes all of those parts and pieces and restores them or rebuilds them back into a tower. Once that tower is a perfect tower again, it has been restored to shalom, to fullness, to completeness, to everything it was intended to be. And guys, I don't need to tell you this. You already know it. Our world is like that pile of blocks scattered on the ground. Even more, many of us would be very clear to admit that our lives, our hearts, us as people, we are like that scattered bunch of blocks. Here's another way of saying it. We're a mess. We're a mess and nothing we can do can make it right. Many of us come to this place today and we've known too well that feeling, that nagging feeling that something isn't quite right 
Not all of the parts and pieces of our life are complete or where they are intended to be. Something is missing. Something needs to be restored. Something needs to be rebuilt. And that's what our world has been like, not just today and not just in current events, but since the moment sin entered the world in the Garden of Eden, our world has been a mess. Sin made a mess of our world, and you need to know this, sin has made a mess of your life. Genesis chapter three, there at the beginning of the Bible, God comes to Adam and Eve after they've sinned and tells them that this world and everything in it will now be under a curse, a curse because of their sin. You see, sin separated us from God, and as a result, everything in our world, including our lives, is broken. Romans chapter 8 verse 21 describes it this way. All of creation is, quote, under the bondage to corruption. That's what that means. There's nothing in this world that is completely the way that God has intended to be. Think of that Jenga game again. It's hard enough to get that tower built straight upright. But imagine what would happen if you tried to build that tower on the podium that I'm speaking from. Now, from your angle, you may not be able to see it, but this podium isn't flat. It's crooked. It's tilted. It's not level. So no matter how well you tried to stack those blocks, they would crumble every time because the foundation isn't right. And that's what the Bible reveals to us about our lives. Because of sin, the foundation is broken. We were designed, we were intended to live in relationship with God. And because of our sin, our foundation is off. So no matter what we do to have peace, no matter what we do to try and restore or rebuild those missing, out-of-place components in our life, we and our world will always be a mess. Because there is no true and there is no lasting peace apart from a person whose name is is Jesus because our world is a world where there's no shalom there is no peace as a matter of fact you may not have recognized it but that is the picture that Luke is painting vividly for us in the first few verses of Luke chapter 2 this is a picture of a world without shalom it's a world filled with brokenness and adversity let me just show you what I mean if you missed it the first time I read it, the first thing you see is that Jesus entered a world of political adversity. Look at verse one again. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, I'm sure all of you history nerds are familiar with Caesar Augustus, but if you're not, he was the very first emperor of Rome. And let me tie that in a, a little bit with our series from Daniel. If you've been following with us over the last few weeks, you've seen in Daniel chapter 7 that 600 years before Jesus was born, God gave Daniel a vision of the Roman Empire. Listen to what God showed Daniel in chapter 7, verse 7 of Daniel. He says, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It sounds a lot like what Logan does to our Jenga tower every time. That's a description of the Roman Empire. 
God told us what it would look like, and history tells us that's exactly what it looked like. It devoured, it broke everything in its path. Like a mess on the floor, that's what Rome created with the world. And the people of Israel in this verse of Scripture, the place where Jesus was born, they were languishing under the heavy hand of the Roman emperor Caesar Augustus. All of the first and second century people reading this would have known Caesar Augustus was the heavy hand of Rome that wiped the world clear. And here's something that's interesting about Caesar Augustus. I hope you came ready to learn a thing or two, but he is remembered in history for one particular thing. It's called Pax Romana or the peace of Rome. So here's this ruler being referred to in verse one. And as we think about peace, we need to know Augustus is known for being the man who was ushering in Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Pax Romana was a promise Augustus made that he would bring a golden age to Rome and the world. He would be the one who would make peace spread all over the world. And so as he, in the name of peace, began to fulfill his promise, one of the things that he did is he made roads that went all throughout the known world at the time. That's why all roads lead to Rome. That, that's that phrase that actually comes from Pax Romana. He made roads all throughout the world, and here's why he did it. He said it was so that they could easily transport goods across the known world, but it was also easy for him to transport soldiers. The Roman soldiers and army could be quickly sent to any part of the Roman Empire to take the heavy hand of Rome and squash any rebellion at all. And so that allowed him to have a presence of military power anywhere he wanted in his empire, the known world, and that meant people like Joseph and Mary had to live under the heavy, harsh hand of Rome. Ultimately, think of it this way. The heavy-handedness that Pax Romana brought to the people of Palestine and Israel, that was the very thing that cost Jesus his life when he was crucified on a Roman cross under the name of keeping the peace of Rome through the force of the Roman army. This is a world that is filled with political adversity. And that's the world Jesus entered at Christmas. The second thing you see is it's a world of financial adversity. Look at verse one again. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered each to his own town. You see it there in those verses. Just those verses, Luke mentions the registration three times. What he's referring to is a registration for the Roman tax. The way that Caesar was going to pay for all roads leading to Rome wasn't through a sun pass you put on your chariot window. They had to have exorbitant taxes extracted from common people to pay for Pax Romana. And so he levied taxation to the common people, people like Joseph and Mary. One thing history tells us is that the Roman taxes were so harsh that people often had to choose between paying their tax or buying food for their family. So while the rich got richer, the poor got poorer. Can you imagine a world like that? Jesus entered a world of political and financial adversity. You see that Luke paints another picture. It's a world of social adversity. Look at verse four. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, 
to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Any first century reader would see the social adversity embedded in those verses. There are two things you see. First, Jesus' family was from Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was a poor, obscure little village in the middle of nowhere. But here's what it meant. It meant that if you were from Nazareth, you were a nobody. As a matter of fact, in the Gospel of John, when a man named Nathaniel hears that Jesus is from Nazareth, his first response was this, John 1.46, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Here's the reality. People were marginalized. People were discounted. People didn't need to get to know you. If they knew you were from Nazareth, here's what they knew. You were no good. You were from the wrong side of the tracks. The second way you see social adversity is that Luke points out Mary was betrothed or she was engaged to Joseph, but she was already with child. Now, we know this about Mary. We know that she was miraculously given the Son of God. She wasn't guilty of sexual immorality, but to the rest of her world, in the eyes of these individuals, she was nothing more than one more unwed mother who would have been in first century Palestine a social outcast, a pariah. As a matter of fact, to the rest of her world, she would have been nearly untouchable, unthinkable. That might actually be one of the main reasons she went with Joseph to Bethlehem. It's very possible she wasn't able to stay in Nazareth because she knew no one there would be willing to help her with the birth of Jesus Even though she'd done nothing wrong, she had to live with the stigma of being a social outcast. And then so would Jesus. He would have been the son that made her a social outcast. Growing up, Jesus would have heard the whispers. He would have seen the stares. He would have felt the rejection of being an outsider. He was born into social adversity. Last, you see, Jesus was also born into physical Adversity. Let me show you what I mean, verses 6 and 7. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Mary and Joseph had to travel 90 miles from Bethlehem or to Nazareth to Bethlehem from Nazareth. Now, most of those 90 miles would have been on foot. Um, If the cartoons I've seen are any indication, there may have been a donkey involved. I'm not 100% sure about that. But either way, that's 90 miles on foot and Mary's full term pregnant. And when the time comes for her to give birth, there's no hospital, there's no hotel, there's no home. There's only a stable with a manger, a feeding trough for cattle, for goats, for lambs. I, I... never given birth before, so I can't speak as an expert on the subject, but into that environment, I think the physical adversity speaks for itself. So think of the world that Luke is painting, a painting that is filled with hardship, brokenness, political, financial, social, physical adversity. Anybody here live in a world that has any political, financial, social, or physical adversity? Anybody? Anybody at all? Bueller? Bueller? You're here, right? A world that has no shalom. A world broken, like a mess, scattered on the ground. And friend, 
That's why Jesus came. At his birth, heaven's army made an announcement to this world trapped in the darkness and brokenness of sin. Jesus has come. And he has come to restore and rebuild everything that sin has broken. He came to bring glory to God and peace to people. And that's our big idea for this morning. Jesus arrived in a world of adversity to bring glory to God and peace to people. Jesus arrived in a world of adversity to bring glory to God and peace to people. And in the next few moments that we have together, here's what I want us to do. I want to do my best to simply answer two big questions that should be in your mind as you read that big idea. Those two questions are this. How does the arrival of Jesus bring glory to God? And how does the arrival of Jesus bring peace to people? It's one thing to know that he came to bring us peace and bring God glory. It's another thing to know how his coming brings glory to God and peace to us. So let's just start with that first question. How does the arrival of Jesus bring glory to God? Well, I cannot possibly tell you every way the coming of Jesus brings glory to God. I do want to show you two things that are right here in our context of the gospel of Luke. And I want you to keep these two things that bring glory to God at the birth of Jesus in mind because they are essential to understanding how Jesus brings peace to us. The first thing you see is that Jesus brings glory to God by showing us the person of God. He shows us the person of God, and when we see the person of God, we glorify him. Here's what I mean. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. This is God who's come to earth. In Luke chapter one, the angel Gabriel, same angel that showed up to Daniel in the book of Daniel, he comes to Mary and tells her she's gonna be miraculously made pregnant by the, son of, or by the spirit of God and that child would be no ordinary child. Listen to the message from the angel in Luke chapter one, verses 30 through 33. Verse 30 says this, and the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. You see it there? He says, Jesus is the son of God who will reign forever over an eternal kingdom. That's just another way of saying that Jesus is God. And if you're not familiar with Christianity, you need to know this is essential to understanding who Jesus is. Jesus is one of one in the history of humanity. Jesus is something Muhammad and Confucius and Buddha and Joseph Smith and every other religious world can never claim to be. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. And so as we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate the coming of God to this world cloaked in human flesh. Here's what that means then. As we see Jesus, we see the, pure, the clearest picture of who God is. If you want to know what God is like, if you want to know who God is, friend, look no further than Jesus 
because Jesus is God. And the coming of Jesus brings glory to God because Jesus is God. And when we see Jesus, we see God. We see what God is like and we find that he is glorious. He's full of mercy and grace. He's full of truth and love. He's full of kindness and compassion. He's full of perfection and holiness. He's full of power and might. He's glorious and he is God. And I want you to think, how significant this is based on what we just said earlier. Remember, sin had broken God's design for our world and sin then separated us from God. That meant that we would forever be separated from God and since we were broken, we couldn't restore ourselves. We couldn't get back to God. So God came to us. In the person of Jesus, God desired to take a world that was separated from him in sin and reconcile it to himself in Jesus. We'll come back to that in just a second. But the second way we see that Jesus brings glory to God is by showing us the power of God, not just the person of God. Listen to Micah chapter 5, verse 2. This is a prophecy from 700 years before the birth of Jesus. Look what it says. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. That was written 700 years before Jesus was born. And it says the ancient of days is going to come into the world. Now, from our study of Daniel, we know that the Ancient of Days is just another name for God in the Old Testament. And so Micah is saying, at some point in the future, God is going to come to earth. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus, because we just said Jesus is the person of God. And where would he come from? Bethlehem. 700 years in advance, God makes this promise. God will come to earth. He'll be from Bethlehem. But guys, there's a problem. Mary isn't from Bethlehem, is she? Where's Mary from? Nazareth. So the question becomes, then how would God get Mary from Nazareth to Bethlehem so that this promise he made would be fulfilled? Well, you know, we read it. Verses one through seven of our text tell us it just so happened that the most powerful man in the world, Caesar Augustus, issued a decree that everyone had to go to their ancestral hometown to register for the Roman tax. And it just so happened that Mary was experiencing a kind of social adversity that caused her to travel with her fiance on his trip to his ancestral hometown of Bethlehem. And it just so happened that the April 15th deadline for the registration took place right at the moment Mary would give birth and you couldn't file an extension in Rome. You guys see what's happening? It just so happened, but just so happens don't just happen. God makes them happen. You know what he's telling us here? He's telling us he's stronger than sinful rulers. Are you guys glad that God is strong for, stronger than sinful rulers? Yeah, because there ain't no other kind it seems. He's stronger than Roman tax codes. You know what he's doing here? He's reminding us in the birth of Jesus that God is working in unimaginable power to bring about absolutely everything he's promised to do. Even by using sinful leaders and rulers and unfavorable rulings and rules. 
He is using his sovereign power to keep his good promises. So the coming of Jesus then, just in these two ways in our text, the coming of Jesus brings glory to God like the angels declared by showing us the person and the power of God at work in the life of Jesus, who's God in the flesh. And that brings us then to the second and final question. Okay, then how does the coming of Jesus, the arrival of Christ, bring us peace? Well, I want to give you two ways. It brings us peace with God. Romans chapter five, verse one says this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That word justified means to be declared not guilty. That means that God, as the judge who has the power to condemn us for our sin will declare us not guilty or just, justified. It means if you're trusting in Jesus, if you place your faith in him, we're justified by faith, he says. If you'll trust in Jesus, you will be justified. You will be forgiven. You will be declared not guilty. But the question on your mind should be, how can God be good and declare sinners like us forgiven? How can he let that sin go? Well, it all comes back to Jesus Remember, Jesus is God in the flesh. He's fully God. He's fully man. And here's what that means. As God, Jesus was able to do something you and I aren't able to do. Jesus is able, as God, to live a perfect, holy, sinless life. He lived out everything God intended humanity to be in perfect fellowship with God and perfect obedience to the Father. And as a man, Jesus was able to represent all of mankind. So when Jesus went to the cross, he hung on the cross, fully God, fully man. As as a man, he took the punishment for mankind's sin. And since he was perfectly holy as God, his death was a perfect payment for all our sin. He satisfied the demand of God's justice. And here's what that means. It means that when you trust in Jesus, a miracle takes place where God unites you to Christ as your representative, as the one who went to the cross for your sin. And if you'll trust in Jesus, you will be completely forgiven of your sin and restored to God as your father through faith in Christ. He will bring you completeness, wholeness, restored to everything God intended you to be as his child. Remember that Jenga illustration that I said, if you had to build that tower on a crooked foundation, nothing could stand because the foundation is off. Well, restoring us to God, stores us to a perfect foundation so that our life can be everything that God has designed it to be. As a matter of fact, that peace with God brings us the second kind of peace that Jesus gives. It's peace from God because the foundation of our life is restored to right relationship with God. Listen to Philippians chapter 4 verses 6 and 7. Verse 6 says, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Listen, I don't know if you're like me at all, but if you are, you're a person who's inclined to worry. You're a person who is anxious and fearful. And that means if you are a person prone to worry, there's something interesting about verse 6. 
When God commands you to not worry, it makes you worry because not only are you worried, now you're disobeying God, right? Oh man, what are worriers to do? Well, that's what this verse is about. It's an invitation to worriers, to people who are fearful in a broken world who have this thing that goes on in their heart when they wake up every morning. Something's not quite right. Something's out of place, and I might not even know what it is. This is an invitation for people like us, that the peace of God, who's at peace with you in Jesus, will guard your heart and mind. That word guard was used to describe a Roman soldier, a Roman soldier who was posted at a door or at a gate, and his job and his life depended on it was that he wouldn't let anything in or out that wasn't supposed to be there. And the peace of God is posted at the door of our hearts. When we come to God, he says, with prayer and thanksgiving. Friend, when the world and the circumstances of your life begin to attack your heart and mind, when you wake up and you're realizing that you're living in a world that isn't fully back to the perfect Jenga tower God created it to be, and anxiety and fear begins to stir your heart to cause conflict inside of you, the Bible promises this, when you are right with God through Jesus and not your own work, you can turn to God as your father in thankful prayer, and here's his promise, his peace will guard your heart through Christ Jesus as you pray with thanksgiving. And you might ask the question, well, what do I thank him for? What is, that, what is it that I thank him for that enables me to live with peace? Well, a great place to start is what we saw just a moment ago. Thank him that he is working in unimaginable power to bring about absolutely everything he's promised to do. When worry and anxiety of living in a messed up world and a messed up life begin to tempt your heart and mind, if you're trusting in Jesus, the foundation between you and God has been restored. And what he's promised to do now as your heavenly father is to use unimaginable power to accomplish everything he's promised to do. So when my heart was anxious this morning, because I had to stand up in a room full of people, who expected me to have something to say. And I'm just a knucklehead from Ohio. What do I have to say? My heart said, you have promised that your word will not return void. Amen. That every word is God-breathed in the scripture and is profitable for teaching and instruction in righteousness, as well as reproof and correction. And the word of God is living and active and sharper than two-edged sword. And I found anxiety leaving my heart. And I just want you to think of how that type of thanksgiving coming to the Father and a foundation restored through Jesus actually affects peace in our heart the way that Christ's world was broken. Here's what I mean. It means you don't have to live in turmoil over political adversity. Anybody ever tempted to live in turmoil over political adversity? You don't have to live in that because God has promised 
You are part of Christ's eternal kingdom and it will bring every sinful, broken, earthly kingdom to an end and you will live forever with the Lord. You don't have to live in turmoil over financial adversity because God has promised he will supply all of your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. And when Jesus comes again, you will inherit everything that belongs to God. Everything that belongs to God. That's called good news, right, church? You don't have to live in turmoil over social adversity because God has promised that he is for you. So who could be against you? You are loved. You are accepted. You are redeemed. You are wanted by God himself, even if you are hated and rejected by people. You don't have to live in turmoil over physical adversity because God has promised that one day Jesus is coming again and he is going to give you a brand new body that will live forever with the Lord. Jesus came to bring you peace Peace with God so you could live in this life with peace from God as you claim his promises and believe they're as good as done and go ahead and give him thanks because he is accomplishing all that he has said he will do. So friend, as you prepare your heart to celebrate the coming of Jesus at Christmas, go ahead and rejoice over the good news that brings great joy. That's actually next week. Jesus entered a world that's full of adversity, a world like your world, a life like your life, so that he could bring glory to God and peace to you as you place your trust in him. Would you bow your heads in prayer? And as we pray in response to the word of God, Would you just contemplate and ask God to show you the answer to these two questions? First, are you trusting in Jesus? His perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his powerful resurrection. Are you trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone to restore you to God? If not right now, in this moment, would you call on Jesus to save you? Acknowledge that you are broken and that the greatest brokenness is your relationship with God himself. Claim the promise that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Call on Jesus to save you. For those of you who are trusting in Christ but experiencing a temptation toward anxiety and turmoil in your life, would you pray that God would fill your heart with thanksgiving? That he would remind you of specific promises, amazing promises that he's made to people just like you. And go ahead and thank him for the fact that he will work in unimaginable power to bring about everything he's promised. Whatever that thing is in your life that's causing you to live without peace, would you bring that in prayer to the Lord right now? It might be political or financial or social or physical. It might be a spiritual battle that you are in. Would you bring it to the Lord and ask him to work? 
and claim by faith his promise, he will work in that for his glory and your good as you're trusting in Jesus. Father, we would just be remiss. We would be absent-minded if we didn't stop and thank you. Thank you for bringing Jesus to this world. And Lord, we would confess that our lives are broken. Our world is broken and we have no peace apart from Jesus. But thank you that we don't just need Jesus, we have him. Thank you that on that very first Christmas, Jesus entered this world. Light shining in the darkness and brokenness of a world that was like scattered blocks on the floor. And he entered to bring us peace. So Lord, thank you that we have peace with you. We can have peace from you as we fix our eyes on Jesus and trust him in faith. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name, amen.